You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Rob Tumbrella. We're going to be in Psalm 145 today. And uh, the Psalms are great for moments of pause and reflection. And uh, today we're going to be talking about resting in the God of the next generation. Our theme this year is to reach and equip the next generation. But really, when we talk about that as a theme for us, if we're going to do that well, if we're going to reach and equip the next generation, it's really a calling to do something that we're not able to do. Uh, we can't reach and equip the next generation by, by looking at them, by shouting at them, by worrying about them. And we really can't reach and equip the next generation by looking at us. So really what this theme for this year is, it, it's, a, it's a calling to look up, not, not to look past them. We, we need to look at them, but to look up beyond them and outside of them to the, the God of the next generation and to rest there. To rest in the God of the next generation. So what I'd like to do today is to speak to those in the room who would identify as saying, you know what, I'm overwhelmed by life as I look around. As I look at my life, as I look at even the next generation, I, I can feel overwhelmed. Or you could say, I mean, I feel disappointed in the present, maybe fearful of what I see in this sort of cultural moment, maybe discouraged by what I see in the news or what I see in my city or what I see just looking around in, in, this, in, in this next generation. Or maybe it's even more personal for you. Maybe you are looking at the decisions and the choices that your own kids are making and you're discouraged by that or disillusioned by some of their choices and, uh, and worried about that. Or maybe you're a teenager today uh, or you're an elementary kid today and you're looking around and you're weary of what you see uh, in front of you. Maybe you're uh, fearful. Maybe some things have been spoken about the future that make you afraid. And if you can identify with any of that, if you can connect with any of what I just shared, I believe that God wants to say a word to you. If you can relate to anything that I just expressed, God wants to show you something from Psalm 145, and that is that He is great, that He is good, and that He is. Kind. Those are the three words that I want you to hold fast to today as we look through Psalm 145 together. That God is great, that he is good, and he is kind. Now, if you're new to the Bible, anytime that the Bible says anything about God, anytime it describes God, it uses descriptive words before those descriptive words so that everybody who's reading that says he's not just this, he's the best of that. So he's not just great, he's the best kind of great. Here's what I mean by that. If I were to say Chick-fil-A chicken sandwiches are delicious, you would say, yes, they are. Yes, they are. If I were to say Chick-fil-A sandwiches are incomparably delicious, you would say, no, they're not Popeye's. Y'all can settle down. I'm at church and I just messed with your Christian chicken. So adjectives matter 
And they say that they're the best kind of something. They're the best kind of another adjective. So when I say God is great, good, and kind, Psalm 145 is going to go beyond that and say he's not just great, he's unsearchably great in verses 1 through 3. He's unsearchably great. He's not just good, he's unstoppably good in verses 4 through 13. And he's not just kind, he is unimaginably kind in verses 14 through 21. So let's look at that together. God is unsearchably great. It's going to be on the screen behind me. You can turn in your Bibles if you like, but it's going to be on the screen behind me. Verses 1 through 3 says, I will, this is David writing this, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is, notice this word, unsearchable. His greatness is unsearchable. Now, when he uses that word unsearchable, it means a couple of things. The first thing that it means is that it's endless. For God's greatness to be unsearchable means that it's endless. It would literally mean of his greatness, there is no search. There's no search engine that can discover all of his greatness. That means there's no end to his beauty. There's no moment where we've seen all that there is to see. If you approach God and you say, well, he's just boring, it's really uh, a, a confession of what you are. You are boring. Uh, it's not that God is boring. There's no moment where we've seen all that we are to see. His infinite, marvelous, and unfolding glories go on and on forever and ever and ever. In a billion ages from now, uh, when we've uh, been there 10,000 years, as we sung earlier, we will never exhaust his eternal greatness. And that's really good news because if you don't exhaust that eternal greatness, your joy in that unsearchable greatness is never exhausted either. It's endless joy because it's endless greatness. So it's endless. But it's not just endless. It's also breathtaking. That's what that word unsearchable means. It stops all other searching. It's like you can't take your eyes off of it. When you've seen it, it's hard to look away. It's kind of like the first time that you've seen the Grand Canyon personally, not just in pictures, but when you just step up to it and you just look out and you just can't take your eyes off of something that is so breathtaking. Or maybe the first time that you stare at your newborn. The social media industry, some of you uh, are in the social media industry, and it, it has, they have a phrase for this, and it's called stopping the scroll. It, it means make your posts so interesting, so compelling, that you can't help but stop the scroll and look at it. Last year, Generation Z became the largest generation in American history. We shared that at the beginning of the year. In a recent survey, 57 million kids and teens aren't connected to a church, which if you put them on a state in the U.S., it would double the size of the entire population of Texas. We've shared that Generation Z is the most social, most empowered, the most digital, that means the most scrolling uh, generation, and the most anxious youth population in human history. The suicide rate has jumped 56% since 2007, according to the CDC. And according to one recent study, half of 18-year-olds in the U.S. report anxiety and fear of failure. 
And about 40% say they often feel sad or depressed. 34% of young people say they feel lonely and isolated from others. That means many in the room feel exactly that way. And teenagers and young adults are not alone because folks that are not in that generation feel the same way, struggling with the same thing. What they tell us is that it's almost like there's an entire generation that's doom-scrolling. Fuller uh, Youth Institute studied thousands of teens and young adults, and here's what they concluded. They said, all the teenagers in the room and elementary kids coming up behind them are asking three questions, and it's this. Who am I? That's the question of identity. Where do I fit? That's the question of belonging. And what difference do I make? That's the question of purpose. Who am I? Where do I fit? What difference do I make? Probably if you're hearing that and you're a student or teenager, you're saying, I I do ask those questions regularly. And it's interesting that if you were probably to ask your parent or even your grandparent, they're asking some of those same questions. What's my identity? What's my belonging? And what's my purpose? And I find it just interesting that in these first few verses of Psalm 145, God is answering all three of those questions for us. Who am I? I'm a worshiper. I'm made and I'm designed by God to notice the words. I'm created to extol. I'm created to bless. I'm created to praise. If we could have that verse up on the screen, the first three verses there. You'll notice those words, extol, bless, praise. That's what we're designed and made by God to do. Where do I fit? Well, I belong to this king, David says. I belong to this God and king. And he doesn't just say a God. He doesn't just say a king. He personalizes it and says, you are my God. And you are my king. When you say someone is your God or your king, you're saying there is no other God and there is no other king that I'm bowing down to, that I'm extolling, that I'm blessing, that I'm praising. I'm designed by this God. I'm known by this king, and that's where I fit. I don't have to wonder where I belong. I fit with him. I fit with this God who made me. I fit with this king. I can submit my life to him. I can surrender to him. That's where I belong. That's who I am. What difference do I make? Well, my purpose is clear. Notice, every day, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. There's a present tense sense of calling. There is a forever sense, past this present and into the future, forever and ever and ever. That's my purpose. It's super clear. And that's just not a vertical purpose. To bless the Lord means that I'm blessing other people around me in that same process. What difference do I make? I'm called by God to extol and bless him and praise him forever and ever. The apostle Paul was a young adult and he was like doom scrolling because he's trying to keep the law all of his life and he's failing to keep the law perfectly. He can't love God with all of his heart and his mind and his soul and his strength. He can't love his neighbor as himself. And so he's doing all that he can to do everything that he can to, to earn a way, to find a way to be acceptable to God until he meets Jesus. He met Jesus personally. 
And he talked about it in Ephesians 3. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, that's everybody who's believed in Jesus. He says, I'm the least of all those people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, those who were the farthest from God, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He uses that same word that's in Psalm 145. The unsearchable riches of Christ, the endless riches of Christ, the breathtaking riches of Christ. That's what he said, that's, that's where I belong. That's what I'm designed to do. That's the difference I make, and that's who I am. That's my identity. And God is calling us to stop the scroll and to look there, to look past the, the, the doom in, in, in front of us and look beyond that to the unsearchable glories and riches of an endless and a breathtaking God and King and to find our place there, to find our identity there. And to, to, to resist any other, any other callings, any other identities, any other purposes. So that's the first thing he says, is that he is unsearchably great. But it goes on to say that he's unstoppably good. See, there's other world religions out there that say that our God is great. But they're not always clear on how that greatness goes into goodness. He's unstoppably good, though. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I'm just going to read through this and listen to all the shalls and the wills. And if we could just keep this up here on the screen. Notice the shalls and the wills. They shall declare your mighty acts, verse 4. Verse 5, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Verse 6, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. And I will declare your greatness. Verse 7, they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The very simplest definition of shall and wills is I must. They must do this. There's a a compulsion in them. They must do this. They must take action on doing this, the people of God. Why? Because they've seen that God never stops being certain things for them over and over again. If you look back on your life, your past, your history, even today, you've seen that God has never stopped being good to you. He's unstoppably good. Verse 8 and 9 say that. It pauses in this moment to say, why do they do all this? Why do they declare your greatness and pour forth the fame? Well, because he is. He is gracious and merciful, verse 8. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. That's who he is. If you're curious about what is God like, well, he shows up right there in verses 8 and 9. He's abounding in love. That means he's not miserly, or he doesn't hold it just to himself. He pours it out, and he's good to all, everybody. And his mercy is over all that he's made. And so then it goes back into the shalls and the musts and the wills in verse 10. And your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And all your saints shall bless you. They shall, they must speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is why they must. This is why they shall. This is why they will. 
And this is really God's plan of revival in every generation. God awakens the next generation through the previous generation, seeing God's unstoppable goodness and then telling other people about it. It doesn't matter if you're a boomer translating that, transferring that to a Gen Xer like me, or you are a Gen Xer transferring that to a millennial or a millennial to a Generation Z or Generation Z to an alpha. We have all of that represented here today in this room. God awakens one generation, and they can't help. They are compelled to take action because they have seen God's unstoppable goodness in their life in a thousand ways, and they have to go tell the next generation. And when they tell the next generation, they have to be specific about it. It's not just general goodness, that this goodness lands on a good shepherd whose name is Jesus. The Pine Tops Foundation says many of the great leaders in American church history, whether it was Edwards or Whitfield or Graham, saw the church's fidelity increase precisely because it was concerned with reaching the lost, usually starting with the youth. Evangelicals are so named because they are concerned with sharing the good news. In other words, it's not a political party. They share the good news with those who have not yet heard it. I shared at the beginning of the year 10-mile radius around our church building, probably something like 120,000 kids and teens who have no meaningful connection to a church family. And many of those, not all but many, have never heard the gospel. Now these kids, these thousands of kids, sit with our kids in their schools. They play on our playgrounds. They are on our sports teams. They live next door to us. And many of them don't have anybody who is sharing the gospel with them. Their parents have, many of them never heard the gospel, or if they have, they're just not at a place where they have believed it. And a lot of these parents aren't uninvolved parents. Most of them are very involved, but they have believed a lie that salvation comes through obedience to athletics or the arts or academics. And that, those are crushing gods of our culture. And some of us are exhausted because we've been trying to serve those cultural gods. And they're, they're cruel taskmasters. And they will take and take and take and never give back. It's a three-headed dragon, academics, athletics, and arts. And so thousands really graduate high school every year very confused. They're not really sure why they exist, not real sure why they matter, not really clear on why they're so messed up or why their family is messed up. They're not really sure how to fix what's going on in here and in here and to make their life better and to sort of become a new person. And all the resolutions and all their desires to be different never actually makes them different, makes, doesn't make them new. There's no newness and hope in that. And so... They just reach and grab for sort of a customized spirituality based on their own authority. And, and here's, here's the bottom line. A lot of them just don't know because no one's told them. And if they're next to us or close to us, many of us have become indifferent to their situation. We can look around and say, well, it's, we, we got enough on our plate. We really shouldn't open up our hearts or lives to those who are far from God. D.L. Moody was this uh, American evangelist back in the 1800s, and he just he spoke in front of thousands and thousands of all, all ages. But he once said, if I could relive my life 
I would devote my entire ministry to reaching children for God. That's a powerful quote from a guy who was used to do a lot of different things. I think we have the quote. I would devote my entire ministry, he says, if I could go over and do it all again, to reaching children for God. I just think about that for a second. Grace Church, we are, we are a multi-ethnic, praise God, by his grace, multi-generational, praise God, uh, people. And God's given us this incredible opportunity to reach children for God. And it's, it's a challenging calling, but it is a worthy calling. To, to link arms together and to say, let's do this together. Let's work hard to, to do this in our day among the hundreds in front of us and the thousands around us. To open up our arms as wide as we can until every last child and teen in our city hears the gospel. That we reach children, we reach teens, we reach young adults. And we want every one of them to have every last opportunity to hear and respond to this hope found only in Jesus. We're called to reach parents with the gospel, to help them dream bigger dreams than the crushing dreams of our city and of our culture. There's a bigger dream because there's a bigger king with a bigger kingdom, and that kingdom is advancing. And it's so much more hopeful than the kingdom of this age. And to come alongside parents, that's our mission, is to come alongside every parent to help you and I see the unsearchable greatness of Jesus, to believe that, to respond to that, and to, to live in that. When I think of somebody who wanted kids to know Jesus, I think of a guy named Steve Arbogast who passed away almost four years ago. Many of you remember Steve very, very well. He was a part of this church, a member of this church since its inception, and um, he served in all, uh, all the ministries of the church, in particular, uh, the Next Generation, Grace Kids, and he served at the square. And uh, I, knew, I knew Steve, but I really got to know him on one of our many nine-hour drives to Mexico to serve orphans at Rancho 3M. Uh, by the way, we're going back to Mexico for Rancho 3M uh, to serve there uh, this summer. So... Uh, Steve told, told me his story, you know, because you have a lot, a lot of time to talk, you know. And um, Steve said this. He said he had a full scholarship to a university, but he lost it when he just quit caring about school and he dropped out. And, and this is where sin leads you. He, he left the full scholarship and ended up working in a traveling carnival for years, partying, doing drugs, miserable uh, got in with this group of friends. Deep down, he just knows, I, I don't have any sense of any meaning of life. I don't know why I exist, and I threw away this scholarship, and I'm, I don't know what my future is. Well, he starts dating a sweet girl named Gail. Is Gail in, in the building? She's somewhere. She, he started dating this sweet girl named Gail, and uh, Gail asked him if he'd take her to go see a Christian counselor. She was going for herself, but he kind of hangs in the back and is listening in on their conversation. He's there just to support, but he hears this good news of forgiveness and new life. That Jesus, knowing Jesus, transforms your life, and you can be a new creation. He can't get that out of his head. He can't get that out of his heart. 
He takes her home, but he drives back the next day at 5 a.m. to go talk to this counselor. And there in his, his office, he gave his life to Jesus. And, and it was transformative. He, he changed dramatically, quit doing drugs. He quit growing drugs. <laughs> he was baptized like the guys here today, the people here today. He proposed to his girlfriend, Gail, and they were soon married about four weeks after he was baptized. And, uh, and from that moment on, you know, Steve didn't think he had it all figured out, but he started pouring into the next generation. Everywhere that he had opportunity, in the kids' ministry, student ministry, young adult ministry, college, it didn't matter. He started pouring it in, pouring into the next generation. He served, he eventually served, when this church was a church plant, as the leader in Grace Kids for a season. Uh, and then he became a leader in the square in our student ministry. And he went on every student missions trip that we offered until he passed away suddenly. And it's a real testimony of God's grace in his life and of the value that he saw of, of pouring uh, into the next generation and, and giving them the gospel early and, and reaching kids for God. And uh, I share all that uh, because this year, not only, like I said, are we going to take a group of high school students to Mexico to serve in that same orphanage, to serve at-risk orphans, to serve the generation in that context, uh, in addition to lead the cause in Colorado and camp, they're still going to do all that. But also, if you've read the Generations brochure, we still have some out there uh, on that table. 25% this year of our Generations Fund that's received between now and this time next year, October 31st, will be earmarked towards what we're calling the Steve Arbogast Memorial Student Missions Fund to support future student missions trips this year and for years to come. And that's very exciting for us because lives are changed and impacted when they step outside of themselves uh, on these mission trips that we are going to continue to take, we have taken and will continue to take. Last year, uh, between the Commons Fund and the Generations Fund, as a church, through your generosity, we were able to, to raise $555,489.03. <laughs> I was going to round that up. Tim gave me those numbers. I was going to round that, and I thought, no, I, God cares about the three cents, okay? Somebody's like, I gave those three cents. We want to say thank you for supporting the, the Generations Fund. Thank you for supporting the Commons. That's that's for the next generation. That's for our community to be sort of a missional outpost to reach uh, all kinds of people through that opportunity. Thank you for continually, uh, continuing to give and support that. But in addition to that, this year, we are imagining what will happen for years to come if we are equally generous to this next generation to see students find their way onto a mission field and to, uh, to advance the gospel both in a cross-cultural context and then to do that here in their, their own city. So he's unstoppably good. And we can get on board with this good shepherd who is moving forward and, and join him. But lastly, he is not just that. He is unimaginably kind. Look at verse 14 through 21. This is how the psalm closes. Notice that the Lord is faithful in all his works. You can just circle or underline that word all because he says it over and over again at the close of this psalm. He's faithful in all his works. He's kind in all his works. The Lord upholds, notice, all who are falling. 
and raises up all who are bowed down. See, David doesn't like do what we, we typically do. He doesn't crescendo up and then just leave it there. He, he goes up, talks about his goodness, and then he comes back down and says, if you're falling, the Lord can uphold you. If you're bowed down, he can raise you up. He says in verse 15, the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord in kind, the Lord in kind in all his works. Notice that word again. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he'll destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Those words all just have this impact as you just read those over and over and over again. I had a friend one time say, uh, when the Bible says all, all means all, and that's all all means. And it's really helpful because we're in there. We're in that all. And we often need to be up, held up and raised up. And we don't always find ourselves in places where, where we're at the top of the mountain. Oftentimes we're down, way down in the bottoms, way down in the shadows, just needing God to find us. And that's how David ends this psalm. And it's very, very hopeful. I went to a, the men's retreat like several of the men this last weekend. And, and on the way to the retreat, I find my, found myself just really confessing to the Lord uh, just how, how difficult this fall has been. You ever find yourself in a season where, for whatever reason, you, you're just having a hard time? You don't really always know the answer to that or why that's going on or, you know, what that cloud over you is all about. But you can just find yourself in a season of struggling. Well, uh, I often have flare-ups of a condition called DWT. Many of you have this same condition. It's called don't want to. <laughs> I think the Apostle Paul called it the flesh Uh, DWT. My DWT shows up and I don't want to pray. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to go to group. I don't want to go to worship. I don't want to do anything. And I, I, like you, struggle with DWT. But this fall, you know, as I'm driving to the men's retreat, I'm realizing that this DWT, I've had some flare-ups. It's not just sort of the normal stuff. It's like I don't want to want to. Uh Uh-oh. And if I'm honest, there have been some moments where not only do I don't want to want to, but I don't want to want to want to. <laughs> and, and getting around some other men who are sharing some of the same things over the weekend helped me to realize that even when I don't want to want to want to, it doesn't change this truth that the Lord is near. Yes. Listen yes. to that. The Lord is near to all who call on him. 
to all who call on him in truth. If we call on him in truth, the Lord is near. And I could call on him in truth. And I could say exactly how I feel and exactly what I'm struggling with and exactly the level of my DWT. And what I found over just a few hours with guys who were kind of in the same place is that he really does answer that prayer. He really is near to those who call on him because I just called on him in the I don't want to, want to, want to, and I moved from there to I don't want to, want to. I was like, wow, well, I can keep going then. And then I, I went to, well, I'm just going to call on you there. And then it moved to, I don't want to. And then, by God's grace, it moved to, I want to. And then I had some moments where I really wanted to. Open up, share. Be around guys. Be real. Worship the Lord. To call on him in truth is to say, this is where I'm at. This is my level of don't want to. And to know that he is near. He is near to you if you're there. You, listen, there's some of you that you're, you're like, I, I can not only relate to that. I don't want to, want to, want to. I'm like five levels back over here. Do you know that he can meet you right there? You can call on him in truth. You can acknowledge that and he will move you by his grace to a place of want to. Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling. If you're falling today, you're one of those overwhelmed that I mentioned earlier, and, and you find yourself falling. Notice, he raises up all who are bowed down. All, as you're falling, all you have to do is acknowledge him in truth, bow down to him in truth, and the promise is he will raise you up. He will raise you up. Raises up everybody who bows down to him because he's my God and he's my king. He is your God. He is your king. So David could say, no matter where I'm at, no matter how far I'm falling, no matter how I feel, I don't have to trust those feelings as authoritative. I can look to my God who's unsearchably great, he's unstoppably good, and he's unimaginably kind. That's kindness. Kindness is reaching down to those who are, who are stooped down and saying, I'm going to meet you right, right where you are. Well, let's close this way. Where do we see the clearest that God's all three of these things all at the same time? Here's where we see it. At the cross. At the cross of Jesus, we see that God is unsearchably great. That's what Ephesians tells us. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That, that great love is shown and demonstrated at the cross. We see that at the cross, he is the good shepherd who's unstoppably good. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. We're, we're the wandering sheep and he's on the cross laying his life down because his grace is unstoppable. Nobody stops him from going to the cross. It's his love that, that keeps him on the cross and nothing else but his love, his great love for you and I because he's the good shepherd. And it's at the cross that we see that he's unimaginably 
kind to us. That's what Romans 2 tells us, that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And repentance is not just working up tears and resolutions and promises and showing God a bunch of emotion. It's a change of heart that leads to a change of, it's a change of mind that cha- leads to a change of heart. And God is changing minds all over the room today. And as he's changing your mind to think about his unsearchable greatness, he's causing a work of repentance. And that's his kindness. That's his kindness. He is being kind to us in helping us lift up our eyes to see his unstoppable goodness and his greatness and his kindness. So that's what we're called to do, to rest in that God, to rest in his greatness, to rest in his goodness and to rest in his kindness. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing, I will build my life. And the, uh, the bridge, I guess that's the bridge of the song, says, I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. And I, I believe the Lord is, is calling us to move towards something that is steady, something that's strong, something that's going to steady us. And that's the firm foundation of the love of God that's been clearly communicated and demonstrated for time and eternity at the cross of Jesus. And it goes on to say, I will put my trust in you alone. And that's an invitation for us to turn away from any other God that we might be trusting in. To say, God, you're my king, you're my God. And if I put my trust in you alone, the song goes on to say, and I will not be shaken. Let's do that together. Let's sing to him and let's let's uh, do that as an expression of faith and trust. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.